0: I was in Zen for eight years before I practiced, started, was introduced to Vipassana. Before that, I uh, was with two Indian teachers, Krishnamurti and a woman named Vimalathakar, and studied Vedanta and Hatha Yoga for four or five years as well. Five of those Zen years were in Korea and Japan. And there was a tradition in koan Zen, which many of you have heard in Japanese, it would be um, Rinzai, in Chinese, Linchi. And koans are a central part of the curriculum. And my teacher was San Sanim, Sung San Sanim, a Korean Zen master, uh, for five very intense years here and in Korea. And they would start us, So he would start us off with a very basic. is a set of koans that are traps for the mind. What is called opposites thinking. The mind has a, the thinking mind has a tendency to create opposites: good, bad, black, white, high, low. These opposites are conceptual. So the trap would be. You'd walk into the interview room, and there'd be a watch, and there'd be a bell. And he'd say, this watch, this bell, are they the same or different? And he would say, if you say the same, I will hit you a 100 blows. If you say different, I'll hit you with a 100 blows. What can you do? (laughs) So we would make up all kinds of things, and none of them worked. One day, everyone gets it right eventually, Um, I came in. And is this a watch or is this a bell? Are they the same or different? No, this is a watch, this is a bell. Are they the same or different? If you say the same, I'll hit you. If you say different, I'll hit you. What can you do? So I took up the bell and I rang it. I pick up the watch, 6 o'clock. Very good. That's it. (laughs) So let me ask you, is retreat life and daily life, are they the same or different? (laughs) If you say the same, I hit you. (laughs) While you're here, keep your mouth shut and sit and walk and don't make any trouble. When you go home, you wake up Monday morning. It's time to go to work. Wash up, get in the car, and drive off to work. That's it. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to continue with the uh, sutta on uh, the the king, who was a bit overweight. Actually, he's referred to as obese. Um, <clears throat> but before I get to that. I'm trying to put it in a context that's broader than the activity of eating, mindful eating, um, in terms And I've been doing it in small ways. I think all three of us have. uh, Encouraging us to bring awareness and interest to everything we do here, Uh, everything. Nothing is uh, trivial. So we don't create hierarchies. This is important. This is medium importance. This is trivial. Uh, Whatever we're doing, that's our life in that moment. And you really do it? Um, what uh, is being emphasized, and I feel what the Buddha is saying, to paraphrase it a bit, is that uh, we don't know how to live. That is the human race. We, we, we don't seem to know how to do that. We didn't then, and now almost 3,000 years later. We, we don't know how to live. We certainly don't know how to live with each other. So we have many other brilliant skills, but living with one another is not one of our great successes. Um, And so the teachings are an attempt to help us learn how to live. Now, that doesn't mean you read all of the teachings of the Buddha, memorize them, uh, and then whatever comes up, you spout an answer, or you try to follow it. That can be a little closer. Um, The learning uh, can happen anywhere and everywhere, even here at IMS. it, the prerequisite, of the, it presupposes that we've expanded our ideas as to what learning is so that it's beyond books and degree-granting programs. That It's a kind of learning where there are Dharma books, as you know, which can be very helpful. Maybe they brought you here. And some of us still read them. They're inspiring. They have a, quite an important role to play. But less and less as you go on. Much less as you go on much, much less as you go on. I asked one of my teachers in Korea, because uh, they, they make fun of the sutras a lot, and I think they overdid it somewhat, but at any rate, they did. And I said, well, then what is the purpose? Why do we read these uh, sutras? And why do, you, why do we read all these teachings of uh, the ancient masters? And he said, when the baby wakes up in the middle of the night and is crying, you read it a bedtime story. When it stops crying, you put it down. Get it? Or is that too deep? <laughs> okay, So, maybe we're Dharma babies. Maybe we need it, I and mean, it's not to demean us. Uh, but the learning is, uh, you can't separate learning how to live from getting to know yourself. And the term that I prefer rather than self-knowledge, which exists in the West since ancient Greece, is that knowledge is something you accumulate, uh, you acquire, and then you add on, and then more is learned, you add on more. Self-knowing, which is in the active present, is something that you learn about yourself in that moment, and then its value is over. It's not, so if you have secretly, there's always a criminal subculture on these retreats. If You're secretly in your room keeping a full notebook, a spiral notebook of my insights my great insights into myself upstairs, wherever you, you are. Uh, that's not it. That said, it. Go, go directly to jail, do not pass go. If you remember Monopoly, does that still exist? It does? Yeah. Uh, self-knowing, it's, its value is clear seeing, in the present moment, what's happening. And what you learn uh, has its value in the immediacy of that moment, in helping you to live, and then it's obsolete. Because if you then store it, there's another kind of knowledge that, of course, is valuable to store. All kinds of technical skills. You have to, it takes time to learn them, a language, etc. Um, then you're not seeing what's happening through fresh eyes. Because the more accumulated the knowing is, the further removed it is from freshness, from seeing what's happening. So what we've been encouraging you all to do is to, Uh, come to eating with a fresh mind. Take a fresh look at how you do eating. In fact, everything you're doing here. And some of it has unearthed some interesting stuff. Some of you have really learned a lot. Um, The kind of learning um, that comes about can come about anywhere. And learning how to live is a skill. If you want to call it wisdom, that's fine. Now, in this context, it has a somewhat narrower frame of reference. It isn't just learning any old thing, because there are endless things we can learn. What the Buddha was teaching was learning how to live. The skill was in living in ways that don't create suffering, unlearning ways that create suffering. And in English, one good translation for me are the terms skillful and unskillful. So there's a famous exchange. That the Buddha had with Rahula, his son, and where he instructed Rahula, uh, before you speak, act, and even uh, before you do something, say something, think something, do something, reflect: Is it something? Is it skillful? Is it beneficial for you and for others? Uh, or is it harmful? If it's beneficial, then go f- ahead, do it. If, when you do it, you find out that indeed it wasn't skillful, I thought it was. But it turns out it's harmful. It may be good for me, but I'm hurting someone else. Okay. Then you arrest it. You cut it off. and uh even after it's over, you may conclude, well, I thought this was skillful, beneficial, not harmful. And I did it. And I ended, and I thought, great. And then in looking back, whether it's uh, a few minutes or a few hours or sometimes a few years, when you look back, you realize, you know, I thought, I really intended it to be beneficial, but it turned out I didn't fully understand, and it was quite harmful. Uh, And then, what he the the, the advice is not it's not laying a guilt trip on us, but uh, if there's remorse or sorrow about it, to let that be there, but in the service of learning. So you have less likelihood of repeating that kind of activity. And so, on this retreat, we have this rare opportunity in a protected environment slow down, and there are not too many requirements, our main job is to get to know ourselves in each activity. Now, uh, to get ahead of ourselves, self-knowing here is not uh, to be confused with um, what I think the common sense or the more conventionally understood uh, idea of that is. Uh, It's not about self-improvement. It's not about self-enhancement. It's actually about self-forgetting. The best teaching I know, the most brief, is by a Japanese master named Dogen, where he said, to study the Buddha Dharma, this teaching, is to study oneself. It's sometimes translated, to learn about the Buddha Dharma is to learn about ourselves. And he said, to study ourselves is to forget ourselves. What? To forget ourselves, to forget ourselves is to be awakened by all things. Okay, if you don't understand that right now, it's fine, but it's very different. It's not improving our personality. It's now me as a a more moderate eater, me as a kinder person. That's better than me as a cruel person, (laughs) me as uh, whatever me does. But a lot of what we are interested in, I think, it's inescapable. We can't help ourselves. We're really trying to perfect our personalities. And this is what we could call a self-improvement. A lot of what is called spiritual, when I look closely at it, it's self-improvement. And uh, this is designed uh, to let go of the self. But you let go of it by seeing it. It's not that you get into a war where they don't kill the self. As you see it, now why would you want to let go of it? Again, this can come out of learning. That's the most reliable way you begin to see that the source of our suffering is this. Again, the Buddha was once challenged, uh, finally, what is the bottom line teaching here? Paraphrasing a bit. And the Buddha said, under no conditions attached to anything whatsoever is being me or mine. But that's what we're doing almost all day long. We take everything personally. We do all kinds of things to enhance our sense of self. And so conventionally, Self, uh, let's say, self-inquiry is to learn about who we are. And I would say, and I hope this gets clearer by the time we finish this evening, I would say Dharma inquiry is finding out not who we are, but who we aren't. Uh, who, who we, that means all the ideas that you have about who you are, they're all wrong. Even the best ones a sincere meditator who just wants the (coughs) wise and compassionate. Uh, Because the liberation, finally, is from notions that we have about who we are. And we've spent a lifetime building up these notions through everything that we've done in work, everything. So much has been done to build up this sense of self and to have ideas about ourselves, notions. And is there some value? in Of course there is. It, it generates energy. It gives us a feeling of security. But when you look closely, you, you'll see that anytime you're suffering, psychologically suffering, look closely at it and you'll see it's me who's suffering. And once me gets in it, it can turn from pain to torment. So. Uh, Dharma teachings are cutting through all of that. Now, to begin with, any kind of psychological self-clarification is helpful, of course, because if the blockages are too strong, you're never going to be able to do this. And one of the main blockages, maybe the, is that we believe these notions. We've had a lot of practice trying to improve ideas about ourself, replace bad ones with good ones. A lot of therapies are trying to do that. Go from low self-esteem to high self-esteem, low ego strength to high ego strength, or I don't know, middle ego strength, and then, but that that may be really essential. I don't mean to mock it, honestly, because until you can get a bit of that, I don't know how you could possibly, uh, be uh, be enabled to see through and let go of all of it. And it's not some people s- sometimes see it. And in a, in a, in a, it's not necessarily dependent on time. It can happen like a bolt of lightning, where suddenly you see, realize that all these ideas that you have about the, yourself, they're notions. their characterizations. They're objectifications. They're ideas about who you are, which we believe in, defend, enhance, nourish. We, we protect it. It gets wounded. We patch it up. We come here to make it better. And that can be helpful. But finally, it's all about seeing it so that we go to another realm. It's going from beyond plus and minus to something that's beyond that. And it's done in this practice, in Vipassana practice. Uh, We start where we are. And where we are is preoccupied with ourself. Almost every question, maybe every question, that we've been all talking about here is about me. But when you're aware, start becoming more and more aware of it, whether you know it or not, you're starting to take the power out of that. It's starting to lose its potency, its grip over us, its authority. We've given the productions of the mind immense authority over us, tremendous authority over us. And then we have to free ourselves. So it's this odd, sometimes to me, hilarious, we've enslaved ourselves and now... We have to liberate ourselves. We're it's a one man and one woman show. Do you know who Marcel Marceau was? Oh, sorry, generational thing. A mime. Okay. We're the whole show. We make the suffering and we can also free ourselves from it. This kind of suffering. No one else can do it because we put it together. And it's through awareness, clearer and clearer and clearer and seeing uh, seeing that enables us. To see when we talk about emptiness, for example, and you might hear in Buddhist teachings that crown jewel of, of the Buddhist teaching is emptiness. In the original teachings, the sense of emptiness is when the mind is empty of any attachment to mere mind. Thoughts might come through, I'm a XYZ, but they're like nothing, they have no potency. And you can, they're not hurting you. As soon as we believe in it, then we have trouble, problems. And in the watching, well, we're in the choiceless awareness, free attention, we're equipping the mind through the breath, through every moment of mindfulness, is a moment where we're enabling the mind to be more fit and able to look at all these clouds as they arise and pass away. Uh, if you can't watch them all pass away, arise and pass away, and continue to become in, be infatuated with them and try to improve them, hold on to the good ones, get rid of the bad ones, you're fixing up a realm that is your prison. This is Dharma teaching. You don't have to believe it. Please don't. It's just a guide to how to look at what we're trying to accomplish here. Insight is insight into the true nature of what's happening. The seeing is going deeper and deeper until it's bone deep so that the seeing and the understanding can't be separated, and the living must change when you see things differently. When we see things as a child, uh, it changes when we let go of that and move to the next stage of of maturity. And this is, in many ways, similar. It's waking up from what we think is really real. So uh, a lot of it, at a certain point, it's really great fun. To begin with, it can be frightening and we don't even want to do it. It's finding out who you aren't. Who do you think you are right now? Not true. What do you mean it's not true? Take a look. Look at it. First of all, it'll arise. You'll see it's an idea. Or it's an image of yourself. An image of yourself is a conclusion. I'm a, I used to be, I am, I will be. Okay. you can have as many ideas as you want about yourself. But the clear seeing sees them for what they are. They're notions. They come and they go. They're contradictory. They're uh, inconsistent. And as you begin to see that, the power leaves them. As it leaves them, the mind starts emptying itself of all of its preoccupations quite naturally through the seeing, non-attached seeing, clear seeing. Seeing that it's not grasping. It doesn't grasp at what it likes. It sees what it likes, but it doesn't get attached to it. It's inclined towards doing things that are skillful, but it doesn't get attached to them. It's inclined to avoiding things that are unskillful, but it doesn't become aversive to them. Okay, we have to learn our way into that. It isn't just handed to us. So the learning can be uh, we're going to let's go to food. Let's go to this sutra right now. Sutra? Sutra? I don't know. <laughs> I'm confused. Well, it is a sutra in this, in this talk. You've heard it a few times, and so I'm going to, you all know the setting uh, of, of uh, it's uh, called the it Dona Napaka Sutta, and it's King Pasanati Goes on a Diet. Okay, you know the setting, and the part that I want to go over, if we've been over it, and I keep trying to uh, enrich it a little bit each time, a little bit more. When a person is constantly mindful, and remember we try to specify in, in, the, te- in the language of the Buddha, mindfulness doesn't have the broad meaning that it's been given all over the place. It is remembering to turn towards what you want to be mindful of. If it's mindful of breathing, it's remembering to turn towards breathing. If it's mindful eating, it's remembering to turn towards eating. We introduced the term sampajanya. That's a kind of an alert sensitivity that always accompanies mindfulness. And it's sensitive, it's alert. And it watches the results of what's happening, like when we're eating, because that's what we're talking about now. Let me give you an example of, of it. And some of you have been a little confused about the difference between concentration and a kind of awareness. What's, what's the difference? What are the issues? I'm t- I've picked the most humble. Uh, it's the lowest, silliest example I could think of. But the principle, I think, is sound. In the shower that we have at home, it's just a normal shower, and there's like a shelf to the right of it. The shower is not a very wide; it's narrow, and on it are one or two of my shampoo and whatever conditioner, and then about a hundred of my wives, you know, <laughs> okay. you know, for different levels of moisture, and uh, <laughs> from from France and Switzerland, you know, like eighteen thousand dollars. It's this tiny little thing. <laughs> I gave up a long time ago. But anyway, they were all lined up like little soldiers. And I try to practice even taking a shower. So for a while I attend, and as I'm taking a shower, you know, soap and washcloth and so forth, Um, I was very focused on just showering. And periodically, as I'm doing that and scrubbing, I would knock the shampoo over. And I was doing it again and again for years. I don't mean every time. I don't mean every time I did it. (laughs) Then I realized, oh, concentration is valuable. But what what concentration does, it excludes. It uh, narrows the focus down. It's like a tunnel of focused attention. And I'm not taking the whole context into account. Now, there's value in that. It can be very useful when you need it. But sampajanya is a much more sometimes called wise attention. In this situation, correct showering, unless I want to keep bending over, picking them up, all 100 of them, you know, put them on the shelf. Uh, now, it's a wider quality of attention, which is still in touch with feeling the shower, but it knows that these soldiers are lined up, too. Okay. And nothing gets knocked over once in a while, but that's when I forget. So Sampajanya is that accompanying, remembering to turn towards what's happening, but also there's a sensitivity, and interest, and watching the results of showering, watching the results, in this case, of eating. Okay. So it knows when enough uh, when a person is constantly mindful, meaning there's some continuity in it. It's not just noticing. Now, here's uh, when we hear constantly, and then here's a typical problem that I don't know anyone who skips. We try too hard, and you've heard us try to ease that up a little bit. Uh, We're trying to be mindful all the time. We want to maintain attention throughout the day. Just what you said, everything, everything's important. We're trying to do that. And we're exhausted by around 10 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Uh, It's more, it's a more lighthearted approach. Of acknowledging what's happening. It's right there. You, know, you, you can feel it and see it and smell it and hear it. It's just happening. An alertness is needed. It's not just being a sober noodle like tea time, which quite good. But that's you eat. You don't want to have attention that's like a sober noodle. So the relaxation also has some sampajanya in it. In other words, there's relaxation, there's mindfulness, and there's an interest in what's going on. Okay, now that doesn't require neck veins popping out of our neck and the, breath, the furrowed brows and the jaw squeezed shut with determination. I'm going to be a great yogi if it kills me. It will. No, it won't, it won't kill you. You just won't come back. Okay. okay. Uh, here's the key one and knows when enough food has been taken. This came up in a number in the groups today. How do you know when you've had enough food? That's a very good question. And remember, I'm talking about food now. But when you see that uh, this sutta is, is on a couple of levels, the Buddha often would speak on two levels. One would be the most obvious and conventional. It's about eating, and weight, and health, and a physical attractiveness. Fine. And it's also about dharma. Dharma, all right, I give up. The new people don't know what I'm talking about. And I don't. It's stupid. Don't don't get involved. And it's, it's Matthew's fault. <laughs> okay. How do you know? For example, I had training where I was told at a yoga training to one half uh, empty, one quarter. Liquids and one quarter empty. Uh, I'm sorry, one half solid food. One quarter liquids and one quarter empty. Okay, it's a formula. It's a, it's a verbal teaching. Now, uh, in the Buddha's teaching, this is a, a subject that's quite important. Everything springs from it. The Buddha gives teachings. And he's also saying, so it's uh, listen to the teachings and listen to yourself. He's not, it's not a belief system. If you say, well, I believe in emptiness. I think that's great. I'm a Buddhist. I believe in emptiness. That's the end of you. (laughs) You, you It's not about believing it or not believing it. It's seeing it, testing it. These ideas are meant to be lived and to be tested. And do they help you live skillfully or don't they? Are they useful? If they're not, don't waste your life on them. I sincerely mean it. But only you can discover it by giving it a try. You can't figure this one out in your head. Now you're here, we're not letting you figure it out in your head. You're trying, because half the questions are about that. But we're we're little by little weaning ourselves from trying to figure everything out from seeing and the learning that comes from clear seeing. So when I did that, I tried and I said, well, how do I know if it's half or a quarter? Or? And at first, the mind wasn't all that clear. And I just would stop, and it was somewhat arbitrary. Okay, this feels like it's about a half. I didn't have much confidence in it. As the mind becomes more clear, settles down, more steady, it becomes more accurate. Liberation comes from as the seeing becomes more and more accurate. Vipassana means insight. Insight is seeing into. The the degree to which the seeing is accurate uh, It sees red as red, blue as blue. That's easy, unless you're colorblind. But this is seeing something much more deep than that. And not as obvious, because our mind is made up of a lot of opposites thinking. Is this the same or different? Well, what's the problem? I don't get the question. So uh, at first, I did the best I could. And then as my awareness improved a little bit, I think I got better at it. But then I started to see, listening to the teaching... Listening to myself, both of them are, are useful. It's not that we have to invent fire for the first time. Some of these teachings from the ancients are, are wise. Take the counsel of the wise, but then test it. It's not a blind adherence to a belief. That isn't what this is about. I don't even know if it's a religion. Some people see it. It's a, a sasana, which is a practice, a, a dharma, a, a nat, the natural lawfulness of things. But if you want to call it a religion, it's okay. It's just a word. And so uh, maybe the, what's problematic and what makes it appealing also is that it has a lot of science in it in that it's asking you to test your ideas. It has psychology in it, philosophy in it. And there's also what we call religion. There's devotion in it. Because if there's no love, if there's no appreciation for what this is, you won't do it. But that has to grow out of doing it and not as a belief so much as you see that this is a good way for you to live and that you know it. It's not because some teacher told you. Maybe to begin with, there's some trust needed. But if you don't finally know it for yourself, you're living on someone's borrowing understanding. It doesn't have much power or authenticity. And eventually, it will fall away. It It just becomes flat. But when you know something for yourself, it's yours. Even if it's a small thing, like, You don't take a shower just focusing on on just the water, a stream of water coming down. You also have a wider angle lens, not just zoom lens. Okay, trivial, relatively, but the principle isn't. Some situations call for different kinds of attention. Okay, And knows when enough food has been taken. But what I found is as my attention improved a bit, that sometimes uh, I needed a little more than half. Like if I had a very active physical day, I needed a little bit more protein and other foodstuffs. And some days I seem to need less. And so, uh, one half, one quarter, one quarter—it's a guideline, but it's not to be uh, literally uh, taken to the point where you lose, uh, you blunt your own sensitivity. And this gets at something I feel that's crucial in the, the approach that the three of us are taking. The word discipline. When you think of discipline, uh, when I think of it, and I think when many of us think of it, it's, a lot of it has to do with um, there's a norm of something that needs to be done. Get up at the same time, uh, do this, then do that, and do it day after day. It has a certain militaristic. I don't mean to put that down because there's value in it. It's repeating a certain activity that's presumably useful again and again. And that person is very disciplined. They get up, they're the first one in the hall, even before everyone gets here. They're the last one in bed at night. Whoa, that person's very disciplined. I did walking meditation till 3 in the morning. Very disciplined. Maybe. By that standard, yes. But discipline, if you look it up in the dictionary, uh, its root comes from also disciple. And it has everything to do with learning. You become a disciple of your own understanding. Now, if you regulate, for example, there are in many of the places I practice that, uh, there was no choice as to whether you wanted I don't think I'm going to sit this sitting. I think I'll hang out or get to your... You will sit. It's the U.S. Marine Corps style. And if you missed the sitting, some monk would come and, unless you were sick, they would just say, what are you doing here? Get back, get to your cushion. And there's some strength in that because we fall back on our weaknesses often, and if we allow that. And so how we're teaching, which is a fairly easygoing, but not totally, we have some structure, can be easily abused. And so in the short run, uh, a tough schedule and insisting that you try and keep it, for most of us anyway, um, is safer and it has certain value. In the long run. Being a disciple of your own understanding is much more easily abused. It's subtle. It means the discipline isn't necessarily getting up at the same hour every day. It isn't necessarily clocking how many hours you put in on the cushion. It's a commitment to staying sensitive and alert to how you live and to learn from that living. And it's invisible. It's a quiet passion. No one can see it because it can happen anywhere. It can happen when you're eating, it can happen at work, it can happen when you're making love, anywhere. So uh, it's not either or, because I think, and particularly at the beginning, uh, a certain kind of uh, a re- a regular r- repetitive activity that's useful, uh, that's designed to be useful, can be helpful. But I would say more and more, if, that, if it keeps going for years, one of the things that I see happening is that people become chained to that and they think that is practice, and when I do that, then I'm uh, being spiritual. Not necessarily. Or we think slow walking is spiritual. Don't some of you think that? What's so spiritual about slow walking? It's just slow. Well, but worldly wa- walking rapid, you know, like in New York, that's uh, that's worldly. That's that's why. Why can't it be spiritual? It has nothing to do with the form. It has to do with. The consciousness inside. Postures don't meditate; the mind meditates. Okay. Now, uh, when the teaching came from India to China, the Chinese, being very down to earth and practical, they couldn't. The monks from India, they didn't do anything—very little. They're much more otherworldly. How do I get off this crazy planet? I mean, through meditation. And the Chinese are much more worldly. You know, family, earth, all this, and they were repulsed by seeing grown, healthy men not doing anything. <laughs> so one, Chang, put him to work. And he said, a day of no work is a day of no eating. Now, it's in the Buddha when the Buddha says, be mindful in all the postures, sitting, walking, standing, lying down. That can be the basis of it. But Bechang, uh that set the tone for all the Chinese and eventually Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, and so forth monasteries, where uh, there is uh, work, uh, where the uh, where the fa- there's a famous teaching, we don't have time for it. Uh, where the cook being the cook is not something that is given to uh, just inexperienced low class people. Uh, experienced, highly advanced meditators would be the head cook, and no activity. What what Pei Chang tried to do, and what Dogen who took it really did, is to eliminate hierarchies. Every activity. Needs to be attended to, as if it's your own. You're caring for your own eyes. uses an example. This comes from China. Let's say Manjushri, who's a personification of of wisdom. You're you're cutting vegetables, and Manjushri comes in to your kitchen. Now, this is like it would be like a great saint, like Saint Francis of Assisi, comes into your kitchen, and you say, "Oh, what am I bothering cutting vegetables? I'm going to, you know, oh yeah." But this says if. If Manjushri comes in while you're cutting vegetables or cooking, he says, get your broom and drive him out of there, because he's getting in the way of cooking. Well, what's, well, that sounds stupid. No, that that's what we're building on. We're trying to say that there's life, and how you relate to life, and that includes time, how you relate to life can make all the difference, so that... If we have an attitude towards life that sees everything as potentially practice, so that practice and life become inseparable, then um, wh- what is it that we're, uh, then when we're here, that's wonderful. We have an opportunity to go into silence, solitude, sit for extended periods of time. That's wonderful. I'm not degrading that, not even a little bit. But then the rest of our life, if we just see that as a break, or it's nice, it's cute, but it isn't, quote, spiritual, then what can come out of that? And as lay people, I feel we have no choice. Now, what is left out, of course, is relationship. It's not just carrying wood, chopping wood and carrying water, or tilling the fields, or making tea. It's how we are with each other. And that's been neglected, in perhaps, in all spiritual circles. So everything is included. The intention to learn from whatever happens to you, whatever your life is composed of in that moment. What is correct action here? Becoming aware of your reactions in relationship. Relationship to nature, to food, to people, to anything really. That's what what this is about. Now, I'm going to have to move a little bit more quickly. Um, it says, so you, when your knowing improves, becomes... And it can then, as Doug pointed out, it can become effortless. The awareness is so natural and steady that you don't break into a sweat. The, because you can, see, you can just feel. First of all, you've awakened the intelligence of the body by paying attention to it again and again and again and again. And then maybe parts that have been stagnant, that are, that have, uh, are a little bit dead because we haven't paid attention to our body. Hey, i'm going to go longer tonight, I'm not even asking for permission because the retreat is we just have one day, and what are they going to do? Yeah. i'm just it's you know, a ritual we go through this okay no i because I want to finish this up. It says the afflictions become more slender, they age more gradually, protecting their lives now. This is where it starts getting really interesting. There are two levels here. The afflictions in one sense are bodily problems that come from not only overeating, but eating the wrong food. Now, uh, I learned some things in yoga that I don't think you learn very much in, uh, in Buddha Dharma. It seems like this is just one person's observation. For a good reason, the Buddhists are very, very concerned about us getting attached to health And the body, making it beautiful and living forever, and then suffering a lot because inevitably it must age, get sick, and die, no matter how many organic vegetables you pour into it. (laughs) Because that's what happens. It's just, that law just rolls on. And so, uh, and also a lot of it, the teachings that we have that are available to us about monks, celibate monks who have certain kind of ascetic disciplines. Okay. Now, uh, for example, one of the main trainings is you go with your arms round bowl and, uh, and you just, whatever is given to you, you eat it. That doesn't mean it's healthy. Uh, when I was in Thailand, I'm a vegetarian. And a lot of what villagers put in my bowl, I wasn't a monk, but I did everything the monks did, uh, was meat. And I found out later even insects. And I had to make a decision early on if I try to winnow out just all the meat, fish, chicken, and just found a little bean here and a little bit I I wouldn't be able to live there. I lived there for months. Uh, so I, I ate it. Now, So the tr- there's a different kind of value to that training. It isn't dietary. What it trains you is to just get comfortable with whatever you're given. So it has its value. But it is not designed for health. It's designed to make you more humble, perhaps. and to appreciate the villagers who then appreciate you because you're doing the practice and they're feeding you. Okay, so on one level, the body can be more healthy. It'll perhaps not be as sick. It can live longer. Uh, It can be more slender. It can be more attractive. We know that one well. Now, I feel in yoga, that part has been taken care of. Now, in the real yoga, they're not advocating... Uh, getting obsessed with the body. But what has happened here, it's been amputated from the meditation. I don't mean just America. I think in the West. Hatha yoga has been cut off from the wisdom part. And so all you open up yoga journals, all it is is about beautiful ladies and men who are trimmed with incredible postures. uh, uh, And I don't see a whole lot of wisdom there. And that's not yoga's fault. It really isn't. Uh, It's just, it's been amputated from it was one intelligent piece of developing wisdom, to care for the body. Because energy in the ancient times was considered an invaluable resource. Because you could practice, if if you're healthy, you have more energy to practice, to learn, to see. If you're constantly plagued by illness, that makes it more difficult to learn, not impossible. And so you're preserving life energy, not squandering it. It's just sensible, but it's not enough. Now, where does the wisdom come in? Well, as some of you have been learning, if you pay attention, you'll see greed comes in all the time. The mind wanting this, uh, you'll see the mind um, just getting all excited about a certain food, not even tasting it. And then it tastes it, and well, it's OK, but it isn't as good as my imagination of it. And you start learning about the relationship between what minds do and, and the body. Which just takes in the food, digests it, you chew it and digest it, and you start seeing the interplay. Now, I'm um, to make, to go, uh, to get on the express train. Let's cut to awakening. Uh, rather than gradual, there's a lot that you can learn. I don't want. We can have a little manual how to do eating meditation, and they exist. And I don't think that's. I know I don't want to do that. I'd rather you learn by paying attention. Learn about how you eat and start to unlearn what seems to be unhelpful, unskillful. For example, if you're a meditator, it's not simply the amount of food you eat, but certain foods, and I got this more from yoga, certain foods incline the mind to be heavy. Certain foods incline the mind to be agitated, excited. Certain foods incline the mind to be light and clear. If you're a meditator, of course, you you need all three. But of course, you want to Incline the mind to eat foods that keep the mind alert. It's not simply not eating too much, it's also what you eat. I th- here we have a choice. The food is, I think, not only delicious and abundant, but really healthy. And, but how we use it, each one of us has different needs. We have to learn by ourselves. Um. To ease into this, well, I better finish the sutra and then, okay. Then finally the king, who as you know from last time, slims down and he, he's, and, uh, he slims down and he uh, strokes his limbs with his hand and took the occasion to utter this. Indeed, the Buddha has shown me compassion in two different ways, for my welfare right here and now and also for the future. The future, in one sense, is future lives. For many of us, that's a belief and even fanciful belief. But it also, uh, it's not just literally future uh, get when the body dies and then you get reborn, because there's another view, which is in Buddhism. I didn't make this up. Read the book Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree by Buddha Dasa, a very, he was one of my teachers in Thailand. Uh, what it's talking about is from moment to moment, there's a birth when we get born as a meditator. It means selfing, the, the meditator as yogi, the, the as ego, the ego as meditator rather, and then it expires. And then we so all day long we're getting born and dying, getting born and dying. And there are moments when we're not preoccupied with ourselves, and there are some of our happy moments. You're jogging and you just love to run. You forget about yourself, and that's part of why you like it. And then. At the end of it, then the mind kicks in and starts telling you, wow, that was great. And then the story begins again, over and over and over again. So that those are considered we're born, reborn and die many times a day. Psychological is what it's talking about. Hey, let me uh, from T. Uh, this is also, in a sense, has to do with this. I've learned a lot. I've had a little bit of training in tea ceremony. Japanese style, it's not for me. You know, it's just tremendously elaborate, um, detailed, ritualistic, ceremonial. Uh, it would drive me crazy. I mean, I just can't do it. But the essence of it that I got when it was done the right way, I did get a little bit from that. and. There's a wonder. Why is tea considered? There's one saying: the taste of tea and the taste of Zen are the same. That sounds fanciful. Well, you mean just drink tea and then you don't have to bother with your knees hurting? (laughs) I don't think it's as simple as that. Okay, in the tea ceremony, there's a lot that you have to do: placement of utensils, pathways, the little tea house. It's endless, and the main thing in Japan, anyway, is. the exchange between people as tea is prepared, as tea is shared, and uh, the relationship that, uh, that, has, that goes on during the time that you have the tea ceremony. And, it, and the emphasis is on being awake. And there's the host. The host is in charge of it, is running it. And then there's the guest. Okay. Now, one of the great uh, tea masses uh, was a man named Rikyu. And his, his tea was called the tea of no guest, no host. Wait a minute, I just read all these pages and got all this training about how, what the host is supposed to do and what the guest, it's all laid out. What, what, what a good host does, what a good guest does, pages after page. So what is Riccio saying, the tea of no guest, no host? What he's saying is don't make guest, don't make host. Do hosting, do guesting, but don't make an identity out of it. Don't make a self out of it. That's just more self-enhancement. I'm a great host. It's me as, a, as a, an enlightened tea host. It's me as a guest. When there's no, no host, no guest, that is entering into what we call no mind, original mind, uh, awakening, some degree of awakening. When we're trying to encourage all of you to do each thing wholeheartedly, uh, and I'll finish with this, Here's one more. It's the same thing, but it's slightly different. The way of tea is made with the heart, not with the hand. Make it without making it. It's the same thing. In the in the stillness of your mind. Making it without making it. Again, that implies the self-consciousness is gone. That means uh, there isn't a me that's making the tea. Now, here, I want to finish with this so you get a sense of how Ordinary human activity can be invaluable as a spiritual activity. In fact, simultaneously with whatever we do, it can be a Dharma practice as well as a practical activity in the world. It's Not easy to do, but um, I would say the essence of it is the immense significance of the present moment. Spend time, not here necessarily, reflecting on the fact that there's only the present moment and that you'll see that your mind is spending a lot of time in an imaginary future, an imaginary past, and even making up what it thinks is going on right now. The practice is coming back to when we keep saying what is, what is, what is the raw, naked reality of what's happening. Uh, the immense significance of the, of, the, of the present moment. It's in the present moment that we heal, heal our past wounds as they surface from memory. The event is long over, but it's there. The record of it is there, it's etched into our consciousness. And if met with awareness, we can heal ourselves in the present moment. In doing that, we're living a better life in that present moment rather than being lost in an old wound, fighting it or drowning in it. And in the process of taking care of it, not only are we healing the past, we're also enhancing the present because it's a better way to live and laying the groundwork for a better future. Because how we live now is, in, is inclining us how our future will be. We're laying the groundwork for it. Now, um, and I will end here. When Dogen says, to study Buddha Dharma is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by all things. And in that teaching, uh, what, it, what it's famous for, that's the school of Soto Zen in Japan, but it originated in China. Uh, it's called shikantaza, just sitting. That means when you meditate, just meditate. Just sit and be awake, because that's what the correct action is there. When you're chopping vegetables, shikan vegetables. Shikan, cleaning the toilet. You tell me. And so well, what's so great about that? More, and I link this with models of practice. I know for some of you this is going to be way it's confusing and may seem abstract. The most prevalent model of practice is if we practice hard now, sometime in the future we'll be enlightened. Well, we'll certainly there are different degrees of enlightenment. And what we're doing now is someday we'll be freer, will be more will and some of us will be fully and completely free as a Buddha or an Arhat and so forth. And I'm not saying that isn't true. But that model is sort of a stepladder. I'll do this, it's in order to, and maybe and it's very realistic. And our minds, as presently conducted, as presently exist, much more comfortable with that. It's all about progress. Get the, first get a B.A. then an M.A. then a Ph.D. or whatever you know the different first be a junior executive and a senior you know so we have all these gradations uh, and there's another model which is the model that fortunately I was given to begin with by Krishnamurti and it's very strong in this uh, in certain Buddhist schools is practice and awakening are the same thing that's what we've been teaching you whether you know it or not. It's not that you, if, you, if you're a good boy and girl now, then you'll get a nice reward later on. Is that if you're fully in this moment, Shikhan moment, just this moment, whatever that mo- the content of that moment is, think of the present moment as having infinite depth. There's no end to it. Infinite space, <laughs> infinite potential. Because where you're going, and I have to use language, is you're going, it's an interior journey. You're going beyond what we think of as the psyche, which we're preoccupied with. And in vipassana, in seeing it, letting go, seeing, letting go, that takes you to another, the mind is a vast place. We're just living uh, like little uh, water, uh, whatever those, fl- swimming around on the surface or plowing the cor- a small corner of a vast field and thinking that that's the whole thing. We've made boundaries. We've bounded ourselves in, stitched it together with thinking, memories, aspirations, fantasies, images, actions, and we're engaged in writing, rewriting, protecting, uh, destroying that from moment to moment. It's the story of me starring me, directed by me, written by me. Everything is me. Everything popcorn made by me. DVDs sold by me, and profit goes to me. Okay. Um, think of it this way. It's like th- these are just very crude images. If you're The more and more, as you're completely in the moment, completely eating, if that's what you're doing, uh, just making tea without any tea maker or self-conscious identity doing it. In fact, real meditation happens when the meditator falls away. The meditator is a big problem. It's the ego camouflaged as a meditator. We have to. We have to start there. Just think of it as digging for water. It's an ancient Indian image. You go deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, The water is there. It's just waiting. It's the same here. The extraordinary uh, what awaits us in what we call emptiness. Everyone has it. No one got shortchanged when you were born. We all have the, when you're thinking and I'm thinking, our minds are very different. But when we go past thinking, we, have this, we tap the same place, which is boundless, emptiness. And it's not just vacuity. There's tremendous energy there, highly charged, subtle, aliveness. And you know when you're in that silence that you're not wasting your time. People say, well, it sounds like a waste of, why would I want to be silent all the time? Because we think the only thing that is real is piling things up, running from here to there, getting this, putting it over there, doing things, calling each other up, paying this, hammering that. that you know. uh, yes, that's part of life. And we haven't tasted this yet, because our education has not even told us it exists. So why would we want to do it? We don't know it's there. Okay, So in the moment that you really do eating, really do driving, really do whatever it is you do, uh, the practice of awareness and the realization, the realization, it's, was, it's not exactly the full liberation of the Buddha, of course. But uh, there's one saying, a moment of mindfulness is a moment of, of Buddha. It means the real Buddha, as Matthew mentioned the first night, is the mind, the really pure, clear, original mind. The Buddha had the same mind. It hasn't changed. It's timeless. There's no suffering there. That's the whole point. It doesn't get born, nor does it die. Now, I don't want to dwell on that, but what a, this whole model of taking, making daily life on a retreat and taking it seriously, nothing's trivial, but with a light touch. And then when we go home, there's nothing to integrate. There's nothing we, Because if you don't separate, there's just life. It's just the next challenge. We leave here, and we get in the car. Or an airplane that 's what 's next, and it keeps being like that. I said, Well, what about the transition we 've been so quiet and then it 's you know you had a transition when you got here too. The transition was you were very all over the place, and now you get to a place where it 's silent. How about work you 've been home enjoying yourself, relaxed, you come in, and all these demands people want to so life is full of transitions, and there 's just life, and in a sense. You can go to synagogues and mosques and ashrams and churches and worship. Those are hum- human-made constructions to help us mobilize this energy at least a little bit. I don't know how far it goes for most people. But in a sense, what we're worshiping is life itself. And it's not a sentimental idea. It's we're becoming more alive by opening up to life as it is. And you can't just say, well, I only want the good stuff and I don't want any of the bad stuff. You can do that, of course. We've been doing it. So each activity, no matter what it is, vacuuming, eating, it's not the activity. It's not that there's something holy about vacuuming. What is important is the quality of mind that you're developing in doing the activity fully. Okay, It's the best I can do. The rest is in the hands of Allah.